The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Sport Fox. Here are your headlines. U.S. markets claw back losses to close near the flat line, but the selling resumes in Asia with the Hang Seng hitting a nine-month low and the Nikkei trading at its worst level since January. The world's biggest chip equipment maker, Applied Materials, reports record second quarter results. As sector heavyweights tell CNBC, the supply chain shortages are here to stay. We're going to build a lot of those factory capacities on U.S. soil with U.S. engineering and IP to help establish what I've called a more globally balanced and resilient supply chain. This is a moving target, the whole supply chain situation. It could actually you know, move into the second half of the year. China passes one of the world's strictest data privacy laws with long-awaited new rules cracking down on data theft and online fraud. Plus, you've got the UK supermarket group Morrison's now agreeing to a sweetened £7 billion bid from the US private equity giant CDNR and drops its support for a rival offer from SoftBank-owned Fortress. Uh, third negative session in a row for the Dow, uh, the market reversing, uh, down two tenths of a percent, modest to uh, the downside on the finish, but steeper losses intraday, a couple of hundred points difference uh, is what we saw during the lows of the session. So the market's again still digesting the latest from the Fed, the taper conversations that took place at the last meeting by the central bank, but also concerns still that are circling around the impact of the Delta variant that has very much cropped up the international markets, as we've seen through the lens of Toyota this week, with the company also forced to slash its production levels as it contends with a supply shortage. So uh, this is uh, another constraint on global growth as we consider what the uh, coronavirus pandemic is doing at this point to global growth. And what we've got in other markets, a little bit of green flashing up for the S&P 500, the market led high by the likes of Microsoft. Same story to tech stocks in focus for the Nasdaq. So the lift uh, about a tenth of a percent, just very modest increases to the upside. But over the course of the week, we are still negative for these major markets in particular for the Nasdaq, which has been down close to 2% after selling earlier in the week. Let's take a close-up look at that Dow session. You can see just how choppy it was. The selling in the morning session, a bit of recovery uh, took place, and then afternoon selling cropping up again before the market tried to claw back some of those losses, and we closed down with that very, very modest decline of just 66-odd points. The European session, well... We had a fairly uh, strong selling taking place across the course of the trading day, particularly concentrated around markets like France. That market pulling back fairly aggressively, down close to 2.5% as it closed out the day. You can see that is well in excess of what the Spanish market was contending with. That market was down three quarters of 1%. FTSE was also trapped in some of the selling. And you can see why if you take a look at some of the, the worst performers, commodities are part of the selling mix. We did see some very strong pressure taking place there. Anglo-American, which it one point was down double digits that stock down close to 10 percent by the finish and you could see a lot of big luxury names also wrapped up in the selling pressure and these are almost like the technology names of europe where you've seen huge international appetite for some of these big names in particular lvmh one of the leaders and also caring but those stocks down heavily 
We've had a lot of dialogue out of China this week about sort of the pushback against uh, excess wealth and whether there should be more rebalancing across the economy. Those conversations in lockstep with the crackdown that's been taking place on some of the big technology names and the entrepreneurs created from that sector. So uh, investors are seeing a lot of heat come out of this market but also a sector that has run particularly hard in this recovery phase. Let's take a look at uh, the commodities complex and oil, where you have seen some pressure as well around the Delta variant for a number of weeks. Uh, so far this morning, we've got a bit of an improvement, though six tenths higher for WTI. You can see holding the $64 mark as a result, 66.71 on Brent prices. Year to date, still stronger, but you can see we've come off the top just uh, recently in the month of August. Asian markets today, well, what a week has been for these markets. Hong Kong, in particular, the one that's been absolutely roiled. By by some of the tech regulation, uh, big name stocks that we've all watched for many years, Alibaba, for instance, as some of these big names are under extreme selling pressure this week. And as a result, we've shared all of the gains for 2021 in this index and beyond. The other market where we've seen a lot of selling, this is around the Delta variant. The COVID crisis playing out globally, but also in Japan, has been impacting Tokyo stocks. And we mentioned the Toyota story before, nine tenths down on that Japanese market. Elsewhere, slightly more resilient despite what we're hearing around the commodities sell-off, the Australian market still holding on to just a tiny, tiny fraction of stability by the close. Steve? Yeah, so much going on in these markets. Great summary, Karen. The only thing I would add is that the oil prices at one point were in precipitous decline, going down to a 65 handle. Uh, rallied a little bit later on, but still week to date, Brent down 6%. And the VIX, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, you know the one you were trading at 15 handle? Uh, on Monday with no hint of a down tick whatsoever. Yeah, it's now up 40% for the week. Okay, US futures, uh, although, you know, if we steady today, I'm sure it'll come off precipitously. Um, the Dow futures called down 0.15% uh, at the moment, as is the S&P future. The Nasdaq faring a little bit better, down 0.06%. Okay, um, guess what? Person who owns a lot of high-tech, possibly high-valued stock thinks the market is absolutely undervalued. Uh, I'm not in bubble territory. ARK Invest founder and CEO Kathy Wood told our US colleagues that she believes stocks are not in bubble territory. When uh, I see such negative sentiment out there, especially when it uh, comes to valuation and longer uh, time horizons, investment time horizons, uh, I actually feel a, a, a little more comfortable. I like bad news and maybe uh, news that's uh, uh, not, new, the discounting is is worse now than the news actually will be. I actually feel better in that kind of environment for, for our strategies. Uh, I don't think we're in a bubble. Let's get out to Joe Bruciolellis, who joins us, Chief Economist, RSM. And Joe, it's been an unusual market in August. We've been melting high, a very low level of activity, but still seizing fresh records. Now we've had more information from the Fed. We're watching the spread of the Delta variant, how it's impacting business and the recovery story. The market is getting more volatile at this stage. What do you make of the dynamics that we're watching on markets? Well, first, good morning to you guys and everybody else out there. I think that we're seeing classic late summer volatility, very thin volume across financial markets with quite a bit of risk hanging near everything from the Fed to the Delta variant to here in the United States, another debt, possible debt ceiling debacle this fall. There's plenty for investors to worry about. But if you take a step back and you look at fundamentals, growth's going to be strong. We're going to see a very strong string of uh, 
U.S. domestic employment reports to close out the year. I think things are going to move in a very good direction. You're even going to see quality earnings heading into the third and fourth quarter. So I'm a bit more optimistic, and I think most investors are, than what we're seeing in the market during the month of August. I was reading your playbook on the Fed, and I know a lot of market participants were disappointed by the lack of clarity in the minutes today. But from your script and playbook here, it looks like it will be clockwork. November, we get the announcement on taper. December, we start. Tapering takes place across the course of next year. And then after that, uh, no dual track process. We then get the rate hike once we're done with the taper. That sounds very uh, much like it will not spook the market if it plays out uh, in that fashion. So what do you make of the concern we've witnessed this week? There's absolutely no reason that we should have a repeat of the 2013 taper tantrum where long-term rates skyrocket. Look, the Fed's been very clear and very direct about this. They think based on the FOMC minutes we saw, there's going to be a very strong run of employment data that will allow them to say they've met their goal of substantial further progress in the labor market. And that creates the conditions for a paring down of monetary accommodation, not withdrawal. I know sometimes we all dance on the pins of heads here, but that's a critical distinction. It means that tapering is not tantamount to tightening and accommodation is going to be there through next year. I think that's something that investors really have to take a close look at, as well as do other policymakers and forward-looking firm managers. Joe, good morning, Chair. There's a lot of lazy analysis out there from people I'm hearing saying, oh, the market's down because of X, Y, Z. And they put all these factors in together, but some of them are counter, i.e., are they concerned in the market about the economy slowing down and the resumption of COVID and what they're seeing is horrific scene in some southern states? Or actually, uh, are we concerned about the taper as well? Because I don't think necessarily they go together. If we think the economy is slowing and we have concerns about COVID, we won't get the taper. But if the economy is robust and COVID isn't going to affect the economy too badly from here, then we will get the taper. So which is it? Which is the market more concerned about, the slowdown or the acceleration? No, I think that they're worried about the, the expansion of the Delta variant. Let me give you an example. On Thursday in U.S. markets, we've got the quarterly services survey, which showed a 4% growth in quarterly demand for services in the second quarter. That implies that we're going to see an upward revision for Q2 GDP to 7.4%. Okay. I don't think we're really worried about an excessive slowdown in the economy. I think what we're all living with is the long echo of fear from 2020 and, and the pandemic. And there's some good reason for that. Here in the United States, 20 to 30% of the population just is unwilling right now to get the vaccine. And there's some concern, real concern. It's, it's well-founded that perhaps the schools won't open the childcare uh, centers won't reopen, and women who've really borne the burden of the adjustment during the pandemic won't be returning to work in the in a, the quick fashion that we all want to see. So I understand that, but I think some of the concerns over the slowdown in the economy are are unfounded. It's just not there. Um. Okay. So. Is it wrong then? And let me ask you a different question completely. I had an, an economist from UBS, I just say, chief economist from UBS, just say, saying the uh, 10 year yield is a useless benchmark because it's so manipulated and so many people have to buy it regardless as well. So, as I sit here with a 124 handle uh, on the 10 year paper, is it useless us analysing that? Absolutely not. You know what? The Fed's been in the game now for well over a decade. This is the market we have. 
saying the 10-year yield is useless compared to say 2005 or in 2021, that's completely meaningless. You have to play the game as it's put in front of you. No, 124, yeah, it's a little bit low because people are worried about the variant both domestically and then more probably more pronounced globally, we can see what's going on in Asia. So, yeah, you know, we're going to, I still expect to see the 10-year accelerate to 175 by the end of the year. And I would, I would wager by the time we get to the traditional holiday season in North America, we won't have such pronouncements. Really nice to see you today, Joe. And hopefully we'll speak again soon. Joe Bruswellis, who is the chief economist at RSM. Right, well, one of those data points yesterday, and it's really encouraging. Well, there are parts of it that are really encouraging, I should say. So the US initial jobless claims hit a new pandemic era low. That's the very encouraging bit. As the labor market continues to recover, 348,000 Americans filed for unemployment last week. That's a decline of just 29,000 from the previous week and lower than the 365,000 figure predicted by economists as well. But there are still an awful lot of Americans still uh, who are still on some form of public assistance program. Uh, the number is somewhere in the region of 11.7 million. So still a very large figure. Karen, over to you. Uh, Steve, uh, coming up on the show, the global chip shortage continues to weigh on automakers as more companies announce a reduction in output. We'll have more on that next. Yeah, for more on uh, ARK Invest's Kathy Wood, who is long the market, after a volatile session straight side, check out the Squawk Box podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Chinese authorities have passed a major data protection law setting out strict rules for how companies can collect and handle users' information. Arjun, I guess uh, for investors out there who are beginning to be warned off a little bit on Chinese equities as well, that the question is really how draconian is this and how will it affect their share prices? Well, it's a little bit uh, likened, Steve, at this point to sort of Europe's GDPR. This is the personal information protection law. And some of the provisions in there, you know, you look at them pretty reasonable. It's about getting user consent for, for, for uh, collecting data. If users don't give their consent, you cannot refuse uh, any services to them. There's rules around uh, how Chinese companies can export data overseas. And there's potentially big fines for uh, companies that fall foul of the rules. So there's nothing sort of majorly draconian, I think, in this. It's born out of a few concerns. Firstly, the amount of data companies are collecting these days, particularly in the internet sector, user privacy uh, as well, uh, and also the growing power of these technology companies as part of the broader sort of move here in China, along with various other regulations in antitrust and other areas to sort of rein in the power of the tech sector uh, at this point. And China's now gone from having a sort of piecemeal data regime to a very fully fledged data regime with a number of laws in that area. 
the, to your point, Steve, that, that that's the key question really is how much does this change the operating models of companies like Tencent, like Alibaba, like Baidu, who do rely very heavily on collecting user data. I think from what I'm seeing here, these are companies that have been prepared for this. I was listening to Tencent's earnings call earlier this week and management was saying that we expect further regulation, but we, we feel that we can comply with them as well. So this law in particular has gone through a number of drafts over the past few months. So uh, companies know it's coming. The question is, and this is a wait and see kind of question here, is how will the Chinese government and regulators enforce this? I think that's going to be very key to telling us how, in fact, any kind of business model or these business models might shift in the coming years. Guys, back to you. Uh, brilliant, Arjun. And, and for more, of course, uh, you put us all to shame. You've actually written a brilliant article online as well. So check out Arjun's story online on the uh, succinctly named Personal Information Protection Law, the Pipple. Uh, Arjun has done an article on that one for us. Uh, Karen and I uh, haven't written an article in quite a while. I hope we don't get made to write one now. I've said that. Karen. We might do it after the three hours of live television, Steve. Well, shares in applied materials dipped in extended trade despite the company reporting a sales forecast for the current quarter that topped expectations. The U.S. group, which is the biggest maker of machinery used to make chips, saw sales rise 41 percent in the third quarter, boosted by the spike of demand for semiconductors for, from automakers. Now, Intel CEO Pat Gelsinger has told CNBC he doesn't expect to see a balancing between supply and demand for chips until 2023. Gelsinger added that he hopes a greater proportion of semiconductors will come from America in the future. As you've seen with uh, U.S. government efforts around the CHIPS Act, that we're going to build a lot of those factory capacities on U.S. soil with U.S. engineering and IP to help establish what I've called a more globally balanced and resilient supply chain. Cisco CEO Chuck Robbins also weighed in on the global chip crunch, telling CNBC there is still uncertainty over when it will end. This is a moving target the whole supply chain situation. I think everybody who's come on the show, everybody who's talked, who's uh, delivered earnings, whether you're an auto manufacturer or a high tech company, has talked about these challenges. But we do believe it's going to be with us through, you know, the end of our first half of the year, which is January. And we did say that it could actually, you know, move into the second half of the year. And there's just, we're, we're just going to have to wait and see how things go. Right. Well, talking of that uh, U.S. chip independence, Tesla's unveiled its own chip for the company's AI training computer named Dojo. Uh, not to be confused with Dogecoin, which I think uh, Mr. Musk has been talking about previously. Anyway, Dojo. Uh, the computer will be used to train the car makers' automated driving systems. Let's get to Daniel Ives. Uh, he knows a thing or two about this. He's managing director of equity research at Wedbush Securities. Daniel, really nice to see you again. Look, can we start off with um, just looking at the valuation of this company and why you think it's worth around about, I don't know, a third more than it is now, around about a thousand bucks. Bearing in mind, other companies now coming up the rails, they trade eight times forward. This one trades at a hundred times forward. Why now that Tesla's getting to scale, is it worth a significant premium to its peers? Good morning, sir. Yeah, it's a great question. And it's really, it's part of the emotional bull bear debate on the stock. I mean, we've always viewed Tesla not as an automotive company, but really a disruptive technology player. And I think, you know, it, it definitely gets different multiple than traditional auto companies we're seeing. I think a lot of it, as we saw with the AI day, it's about the software services. It, it's about the sort of future. They've really obviously established the EV market, but no doubt competition coming from all angles. And that's ultimately really been the overhang in the stock, especially in China. 
with competition, some of these PR and safety issues that have been, a, I'll call it a dark cloud over the stock. In terms of, though, the profitability, and, and we've looked at profitability per unit, you've done a lot of the brilliant work on this over the last couple of years. And, and in China, especially, they, they look like they turned a corner as well. The margins were picking up, the profitability picking up. But given what I'm hearing from Toyota uh, about chip shortages, about uh, from Volkswagen about silicon shortages as well, um, they must have those same real-world restrictions as well. Is that going to be a bar on profitability for this company? Yeah, I mean, look, chip shortage is obviously, it's really a big issue, not just for Tesla, but across the auto industry that we're seeing globally. I think the thing that's important to understand is as far as this green tidal wave that we're seeing with EVs, especially with Tesla, every car that they make, they sell. But no doubt, the chip shortage right now, that's definitely a ceiling limiting you know, them what I believe could be 900,000 units this year. And you're seeing more and more deliveries across the world continue to get pushed out because of the chip shortage. But, but ultimately, this continues to be a demand story. Demand you know, in EVs is just massive. And I think what we're seeing from Tesla is them showing more and more the software services. That's part of the flywheel that's really the key to the valuation. Daniel, I want to pick up on that point around the AI training chip, uh, this big AI day that Tesla had, because what we've seen from other device makers, whether they're small or large, is that there's been a huge amount of collaboration across the industry. The fact that we've now got this vertical integration by Tesla, what is it saying about the pace of innovation of that company and how it may be different to other device makers we've also covered in the past? Yeah, and you bring up a great point. I mean, think about, look at Apple. I mean, Apple really, you know, they built their own chip and, and now more vertical integration. That's what Tesla is doing, more control over their ecosystem. You know, as we've seen with full self-driving and autonomous, I mean, there's going to be a lot of issues there. And that's something that, that's definitely an overhang for Tesla in terms of the safety probe. But I think it shows they want to have more control and drive more of that AI in, into what's really going to be the next decade of growth at Tesla. So it's with competition coming from all angles. And I think that this is an important dynamic that we're seeing really across the whole tech food chain, you know, with obviously Tesla throwing their hat in the ring. Tesla also talking about the potential for a Tesla bot prototype next year that is a robot that does all those repetitive or even dangerous tasks. So that's more technology coming to the mix. What does this mean, though, as we talk about more competitors? I mean, the analyst industry have been very much looking at the catch-up by the likes of Daimler, Daimler, some of the big German automakers elsewhere as well, BMW. What does this mean if we, as we put it together and the competition starts to rush into the EV space? Does Tesla still manage to stretch out that moat a little bit further because of the technology? Well, I mean, that's really what they're trying to do today is really flex their muscles, show some of the, the futuristic technologies that have made Tesla what they are today. But no doubt, I mean, competition's fierce. I mean, we're seeing that in Europe and the U.S. and especially in China. And Tesla has a bullseye on their back. And it's something where they're going to have to continue to not just innovate, but also around battery prices, you know, to reduce battery prices. They're going for the sweet spot in terms of mass market, in terms of price coming down. And that's something that we're seeing across EV. I mean, this is an arms race going on right now, an electric vehicle as part of this green tidal wave. Daniel, I can't miss the opportunity to ask you about the iPhone 13 from Apple. Uh, we're watching all these supply chain issues. Uh, we're watching the innovation over then at Apple. What do we expect to hear from the company on the iPhone release? And uh, you know, what are you watching for in terms of the stock action? 
Yeah, I mean, for us, Apple, I think six, nine months now, we're looking at a $3 trillion mark cap. It's part of this super cycle that's continuing to play out from iPhone 12 to iPhone 13. We think that gets launched third week in September. You know, everything we're seeing in terms of Asia supply chain, it's up anywhere from 10 to 12% over iPhone 12. It shows the demand continues to be there. The one that's important on this iPhone 13, besides just 5G, we think there will be a one terabyte option, which is, you know, I think pretty significant in terms of capacity. Daniel, you've seen so many cycles and you've seen so many um, scare stories in technology over the years as well, but you've also seen the dot-com bubble burst as well. How different is this current market, this especially the tech arena now, from what we saw 20, 21 years ago as well? Because there are a lot of people out there saying, yeah, there's some brilliant companies. You've just mentioned a couple of them. But there's also a lot of companies who are really going to struggle in the real world to ever achieve sustainable margins and profitability. Are we anywhere near, in some ways, what we were like 20 years ago? Yeah, I mean, it's someone that covered tech stocks back then in terms of the bubble and, and the burst. The reason I think it's so much different versus today, just when you compare and contrast, is the demand and the actual use cases are here. This is not aspirational. We're seeing it, what I view as almost a fourth industrial revolution across cloud, across AI, you know, across electric vehicles and others. I think that's the difference. Now, look, no doubt some of these companies are going to fall by the wayside. You know, there's going to be clear winners you know, which is what we do in terms of hand-holding our clients through it. But I do view this as really the most transformational time that I've ever seen covering technology because of what's actually happening in terms of the enterprise and on the consumer, as well as on electric vehicles. So I do view it as a lot different versus going back to dot-com, where it was all sort of pie-in-the-sky eyeballs where it could go. Um, and I think that's really the difference. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.